Good morning. I'm Aya Wimala, and today is Tuesday, December 7th, Pearl Harbor Day. It is very cold here. 10 in the morning and it's about 14 degrees, so we're hitting we're hitting winter. So I hope you're warm and enjoying a holiday season, whatever it is. Try not to get too um, concerned over shopping and things and try to think of the spirit, how you want the spirit of your holidays to be. So today I wanted to read more from the book, and you know I'm just skipping around, Wisdom is Bliss by Robert Thurman. Oop, there it is. And it's published by, actually it's published by Hay House Publishing. I was thinking it was um, something else. So you can Google it, but it's Robert Thurman, T-H-U-R-M-A-N. He has about 10, at least 10 other books, uh, looks like more. But it's available from Hay House, H-A-Y, Hay House. And... Um, easy to find if you want the book. I think it's it, I think it's a wonderful book. It's not difficult to read, but it's very uh, very very deep. It's very significant. The teachings are significant. And it's from a more of a Tibetan Buddhist tradition. But Robert Thurman is an American and a scholar and very well respected. And um, I think the way he puts things they're the same essential teachings because this is basically about the uh, Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And so looking at different expressions and different ways of talking about a concept from a different tradition I think is really good for us and, and can give us some, sort of add something to the way we may have kind of consistently see, seen something his his point of view is essentially the same, but I think sometimes he'll say something that just opens my eyes a little bit more to a concept I might have thought I understood. And uh, he opens it up even deeper. So it's uh, enjoyable reading. So let's, what I wanted to do today was read some a little bit from uh, more about the beginning so we understand a little bit more. So, some of it I think I want to read and then... Eh. So how about this part, The Highway with Eight Lanes? And this is in his section called The Realistic World View. Okay, this is chapter two of the book. And let me tell you how he puts the, how he sets up the, uh, first I'll read the way he sets up what we call the Noble Eightfold Path. And you know, we always uh, struggle with the translation for right, right view, right intention, right livelihood, all the, all the eight. And uh, he has used, he uses the word realistic. 
So here are the eight. So he's, he's put this into some language that probably is much more modern for us. So the super education, and the super education is that uh, when we're moving from the mundane to the supramundane path, so going from the path as a way to live a good life and then moving into the path as a way to move to liberation, complete liberation. So I'm going to skip uh, and go, go from one thing to another. So the super education in detail, and this is from his book, Wisdom is Bliss. The three super educations, and he puts those in quotes. They're his, they're his translations. The three super educations, he's divided the eightfold path into three groups, which we often do. The three super educations serve as your path to such a state. Though I talk of path, remember that you are already there, as you will ultimately recognize. So your journey is to find out where you already are. I think that's really important. The Buddha often talks about how important it is that we know what we know and we know what we don't know. So your journey is to find out where you already are. This threefold path is conveniently divided into eight branches. So it is commonly known as the Eightfold Path of Buddhism, or as I call it, Engaged Realism. The three super-educations are divided into eight branches of the educational path, each distinguishable from the other, and yet all going in the same direction. The super, the science super education is divided into one, realistic worldview, two, realistic motivation. The ethics super, educa super education is divided into three, realistic speech, four, realistic evolutionary action, five, realistic livelihood, and six, realistic creative effort. The mental supereducation is divided into seven, realistic mindful awareness, and eight, realistic meditative concentration. And we usually think of one, uh, the eight would be realistic, uh, 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 right understanding, right view, right speech, right action, right livelihood, uh, right mindfulness, and right uh, concentration. So he's just given them other uh, titles, that, and realistic is wonderful, because what we're always trying to do, what the focus is, what Buddha's focus was, was to have clarity, to see things as they actually are without all of that self in the way, uh, to understand things without all of the perceptions that we bring to situations or any kind of cloudedness we have because of our views on things. So that's what we're always working with, right? So I think realistic is wonderful. 
We want to work with reality. So back to the book. In sum, you need to develop your knowledge, your self-control, health, and energy, your lucid wakefulness, and your super focus. Then you will, you will become able to know what, where, and how you are going to have more fun while bringing more fun to all your beloved companions and friends and even your enemies who won't harm you anymore once they are having too much fun to bother, once you are having, <laughs> wait, <laughs> and even your enemies who won't harm you anymore once they are having too much fun to bother. That may take a long time, right? But he's, he's explaining this in a way that makes sense to our human brain, right? Now you may be thinking, is he talking to me? Why should I do this? How can I do this? Is there some other way for me? If you're thinking something like that, it's a good sign. Of course, you can find other keys to the door I am opening for you. If you have another key that works for you, more power to you. I do know that this particularly, particular set of keys I present in this book works very well. They have been tried and true over thousands of years for countless individuals in numerous languages, countries, and cultures. If you have them in your hand, you might as well try them out. If you change your mind later on, you can always get another set. After all, you are free, you are human, you are intelligent, you are sensitive, and you can make your own decisions. It may be that the countless beings <clears throat> have, who have preceded you and me and are now already enjoying the super fun of enlightenment are monitoring our classroom, this world, and have tweaked our destiny as humans on this planet through our sciences, arts, technologies, histories, and so on. They are following their Star Trek Prime Directive by not interfering openly in our evolutionary progress, <clears throat> but subtly, subtly planting hits, hints and clues as in a giant game of clue or quest or treasure hunt. For example, how about all our different artists, our musicians, our Ravi Shankar Veena players with their ragas, our Vivaldi's Bach's and Beethoven's, our Leonardo's, Tsongkhapa's, Dogen's, Nagarjuna's, our, De our Descartes, Kant, Heisenberg's, and Einstein's, our Shakespeare's, Gorsese's, Spielberg's, Lucas's, our great poet Sappho, Shantidewa's, Keats, Shelley's, and Emily Dickinson's. They play their instruments, invent their theories, build their mechanisms, tell their stories, write their poems, and sweep us down the rivers in their harmonies and transporting flights of sound and light and vision. Things seem so desperate today. Technologies of environmental pollution, reckless resource extraction, and war power destruction being so overwhelming as to jeopardize our lives and the future prospects for all beings. 
It seems as if we have no alternative but to take responsibility for ourselves and do whatever we can to make things better, starting with cultivating our own adaptability and resilience. We also might as well have some fun in the process, as we may have noticed that we are more resilient and adaptable when we are having some sort of sort of fun. Now is the time for all good people to come to the aid of themselves and their world, including their own nation and their neighbors. I myself am still a work in progress, but in the last 60 years, thanks to the kindness of my teachers, partner, children, and friends, I have discovered enough about my own Buddha nature to be confident about yours and to know this book can be helpful. So that's a good description of what his uh, what his book is 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 uh, going to be talking about. So I'll read a little bit more to get to what I was going to start with the highway with eight lanes. So this is the beginning of chapter two, the realistic worldview. As we sometimes call a right understanding, a right view. When Buddha felt the bliss of the experience of the full understanding of reality, he immediately saw what had been wrong with him up to that moment. He knew it was the same thing that is wrong with most other people. So he decided after waiting for the invitation from the powers that be, the god of the day, great Brahma and company, that he would share his prescription and his therapeutic curriculum. He had previously meditated with a group of five ascetics, and so after a 49-day holiday, this is after this is the seven weeks after his uh, enlightenment, after a 49-day holiday, he went to see him, see them, his former companions, to give him his prescription for mental and physical health, which he called the Four Noble Truths. He called them Noble Truths because these things are true for someone who has achieved a degree of openness and sensitivity that enables them to emphasize with others and feel a kind of noblesse oblige a friendly responsiveness to their needs. And they are not true for the ordinary, self-enclosed, self-defensive, uptight, self-centered sort of person, everyone who has not gone through some kind of opening experience. Generally, I would sadly say that since then, over the last few thousand years, were most of us still stuck there at some point, so that's why he called them noble truths. We think someone is noble when they are the best kind of friend, and these four truths are states of reality, facts of life, not just propositions. These four truths are friendly facts. These are his four friendly facts, the four noble truths are still today a model for a good doctor's diagnosis. One, the recognition of the symptom. Two, the diagnosis of its cause. 
Three, the prognosis that gives us the likelihood and the nature of the cure. And four, the therapeutic method that counters the malignant effects of the cause. Let's break out these four a little bit further. Number one, the recognition of the symptoms. The symptom that plagues our unexamined and unenlightened life is our constant suffering, the suffering of change as our pleasures fade, the suffering of our pains such as birth, aging, sickness, and death, and the cosmic suffering of us thinking we are separate from the alien alien universe around us. Two, the diagnosis. The causes of such constant suffering, the cause of such constant suffering is our misknowing, knowing mistakenly that we are really real in ourselves and really separate from the world around us, which leads to the craving and the dread engendered by the hopeless struggle of our small I against the huge everyone and everything other than me. Three, the prognosis. Fortunately, the prognosis is excellent. As deepest, as deeper examination leads to non-dual wisdom. At the deepest level, when we fully realize that in fact the self is utterly and harmoniously interrelated to everything other, we experience the blissful relief of total freedom from any kind of suffering. And four, the therapeutic method, since it takes effort and time to transcend the superficial stress, to reach the deep bliss of the really real, the effective therapy is an eight-lane highway on which to drive the great vehicle of the comprehensive super-education of our whole humanity, transforming and empowering our body, our speech, and our mind to discover who and what we really are. So let me read just uh, uh, two more paragraphs to explain why he chooses to use realistic instead of uh, right to describe the Eightfold Path. The Highway with Eight Lanes The eight lanes of this highway usually have been referred to in English as the lanes of right view, right motivation, right speech, right evolutionary action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Translating the Sanskrit sanyak as right and right view reflects the idea of the early English translators that Buddhism must be a religion and the lanes of its highway must be a set of religious rules or commandments against which one's actions can be measured as right and wrong. That is what they expected of a religion, that it should have a creed, a set of beliefs and rules of thought and behavior as prescribed by a deity or prophet like their own Western religions. But the Buddha was not founding a new religion. He was rebelling against the Vedist religion of his culture, 
rejecting its inadequacy for guiding a fulfilling human life. Instead of enforcing a religion, he was instituting a new system of liberating education. Instead of saying right, I use the term realistic for the Sanskrit sanyak attached to each of the eight lanes, since realistic is better for according with reality rather than right, which is appropriate for following a rule, right or wrong, and reality is where the highway leads. It is what we have to work with. Of course, in matters of practicality, being realistic is right and being unrealistic is wrong, so it's not that far off. I do love his clarification, and referring back to early translations into English, there were things that were really uh, based on translators having the uh, Christian religion as the background, or uh, so translating into English, there are some things that have carried over that are really not appropriate, so I like how he addresses that. You may also have heard that Buddhism is basically or even only meditation and that meditation is the most important thing you can do and learning is okay but not so important. Practice, we are told, is meditation and that's it. The rest is window dressing. This is misleading, both wrong and unrealistic. The Buddha makes this clear by placing the realistic view as the very first lane of the Eightfold Highway. Why isn't meditation first? Where is meditation? Well, one kind of meditation is the Eighth Branch, realistic concentration, and maybe another, and that's Samadhi, and maybe another type is an aspect of the Seventh Branch, realistic remembering or mindfulness, and that's Sati in Pali. When I was just getting started on this highway or path, in my own early understanding, I wanted only to meditate. While reading Nagarjuna's book, the Tibetan language shone off the pages in letters of gold, and I wanted to leap toward freedom from habitual reality. Subliminally, I think I may have wanted freedom from life. I would get so filled with this feeling of nirvana presence, freedom from my worries, freedom from all anxieties and fears, that I would go into a kind of trance-like meditation and I would actually begin to experience leaving my body, feeling as if I was on the threshold of mounting, melting into nirvana as I imagined it. Geshe Wangyala, my beloved root teacher, went to some trouble to actually stop me from meditating. I couldn't believe it at the time since I thought that meditation was the way out of my predicament in the world. He was definitely clairvoyant since whenever I jumped into meditation and especially when I began to leave the plane of the anxious mind and the restless body and soar into contemplative spaces of release and ease, He would show up, bang on my door, interrupt me, distract me, and take me back to the path of learning and thinking. Although I would be polite, I would think, oh, I can get back to Nibbana later. It's there. And a couple of times I almost did. 
but my meditation obsession was so frustrated. Much later, after learning more and using meditation more carefully, I overcame my frustration and realized that this was a great blessing, a deep teaching. There is no use in meditating much until you have learned something and become clear, especially about the way you deeply and unconsciously exaggerate your sense of self. Wow. Before you disrupt that habit, heightened meditation prowess will just give more power and armor to that deep-seated self-identity habit. This habit is a seemingly natural feeling of being an absolute, fixed, solid, undeniably present, really real self. The mind is so powerful, if you meditate too much without learning to somewhat neutralize that habit, you can get stuck in some sort of disassociative state. How wonderful he says that so clearly. Wow, this is wonderful. Um, I'm going to stop here because that is really profound, and he. I want to I read uh, more uh, Thursday at this part. But he is really talking about uh, something that I know at Blue Lotus. People are always encouraged to realize that their real practice is off the cushion, that our meditation is our training. So... Um, it's really true. There are, there are some other religious practices, spiritual practices, that actually want uh, people to learn how to disassociate from their body, to leave their body. And that's, he's, that's exactly what he's talking about. He was naturally kind of seeing himself go into that state and thinking, how wonderful I can just get away from the body and all my problems and have this wonderful... Uh, thinking it's a spiritual experience. But leaving the body is one of the first things we want to tell people. That's not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to leave this body. We're trying to understand the body and the mind and the rest of the world and our relationship to it. So uh, if, if you find that meditation just sort of takes you away to the Calgon world, uh, that's not what we want. We're, we're not, we don't want to go anywhere other than within. So I think his description of that is wonderful. So early on, we don't need to be trying to practice uh, or ever need to try to practice to leave the body. That's, that's not where we go. We're always going within. And so he just, this is so beautifully said. I'm going to read one sentence from the next paragraph, but then we can sit for a little bit. Uh, the Buddha's great discovery came from his sustained investigation of the status of his sense of absolute, intrinsic self-identity. Eventually, he experienced that sense, that sense of intrinsic self-identity as baseless, its assumed object, his intrinsic identity, dissolving under analysis. A little scary at first, but then immediately releasing. 
So it's that habitual self. It's that always coming back to, it's, it's all about me, right? It's all. So I don't know this book. This, this book, uh, is, is wonderful. So we'll read some more, but I love his, I love how he's presenting it. That would this is Buddhism is about becoming more realistic. And the path is realistic. It's seeing how to how to live in this world and understand. So let's sit. I'd love any of your comments on it. Um, but let's sit for a few minutes. We don't have a lot of time, uh, but we can definitely, if you have more time, uh, Beyond the time I'm here with you, please just keep uh, sitting. And we don't need to think when we meditate. We can just let things kind of percolate. And let our body uh, become calm enough so we can be uh, able and be able later to focus better, to have that feeling of mental stability in everything we do. And we need to be doing it by getting in touch with our mind and our body and our connection literally to the earth. So that's why beginning or practicing using uh, body scans can be really important. Sometimes we discover how unconnected we are to the earth. And I know over the last year, I've, I've become very aware of needing to connect more, literally, with the earth. Uh, watching the chipmunks and getting out and taking more walks and meeting people by going uh, on trails, some of the wonderful trails and things we have in this county, and just being out in earth, touching the earth, walking on the earth, uh, developing more and more respect for the creatures and the earth itself. My squirrels are really good teachers. <laughs> they're not, and they're not mine, right? Right away, I'm self-identifying. I'm <laughs> taking them on as mine. The squirrels who live near me are my, are very good teachers for me. <laughs> so, Always, you can, your meditation can be about reconnecting with your physical body and helping you see that, make sure you understand that your mind is part of that body. We don't need to be spacing out and trying to go somewhere else because that's, that's not healthy. We can, we can learn how to be and be at peace and be happy where we are and with this body. So just allow yourself to, wherever you are, whatever posture you're in, lift your spine up, feel awake and attentive, and start by just being aware of the body breathing
Just be aware of everything your senses are picking up, everything coming into you. Your mind is always picking up things and creating thoughts. So don't try to get rid of your thoughts, but just learn to let them come and go. More and more, they won't need to sidetrack you or take you down that rabbit hole. Most of the time, we can just let them arise and then fall. Just like each breath, we breathe in and then we breathe out. We're learning to work with our mind, even understanding, is this the time we want to think about something or reflect on something or work on a, it might be a good time to work on something rising up in your body, but it might not be the best time to sit down and try to tackle a big problem. We might want to break that up in small parts. Our work on that when we feel it rising up in our body and we can identify it, we can continue to work on it after our practice, after our training period. So for right now, we're just being aware of our breath, the body breathing for us. Be aware of the body from the top of your head down through your toes. Feel awake, be aware and attentive,
let go and let be. If you notice your mind is thinking of ways to solve a problem or to fix something or to fix a person or to fix yourself, just let be, let it all be. Be okay with what is for this moment. This is the only moment we really have. Now, if you can, continue to sit and practice and just bring peace and calm. We're always moving towards mental stability. That can be the same as concentration, just a stable mind. That calm, calmer mind. And enjoy that. So for today, if you can keep practicing, that's wonderful. So may everything we do and say and think be not only for our own benefit, our own evolutionary progress, but may it be done for the benefit of all other living beings. May you all be well and happy and peaceful. Have a beautiful day. Thank you for being part of my practice. And I'll be be back on Thursday. <laughs>